the art of self-reliance is forging your own path, but the path is difficult. Made easier by learning from those who have succeeded in directing their own lives on their own terms. With their help and inspiration, your path to self-reliance moves from dream to reality. And now, here's your host, Dr. Rodney King. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Art of Self-Reliance podcast. In this episode, I speak to Stuart King. Stuart has a sports science background and followed that up with an MSc in physical activity, health, and well-being. He's in charge of the strategic direction of Busy Bee Bodies, a team of nutritionists and behavior change experts, helping people make real, long-lasting changes towards a healthier lifestyle. They run weight management and healthy lifestyle programs for adults and families in Brighton, Hove, Hertfordshire, and Gloucestershire in the United Kingdom. In this episode, we discuss translating evidence into meaningful lifestyle interventions that work in the real world, using behavioral science to design life changes, and habitus, and how it is the most important theory you may have never heard of. The art of self-reliance calls you to adventure to develop your self-protection skills, to learn how to survive no matter where you find yourself, and to thrive amongst life's chaos. Here's my first question for you, Stuart. When you hear the words self-reliance, what does that mean to you? That's a, that's a great question, actually. I, you've, gone right in, you've gone right in with a doozy there, straight away. Um, self-reliance. I suppose to me it means having the ability to do what you need to do, um, having the resilience to sort of um, overcome any adversity that you, you encounter during that period and um, you know, building support networks around you that allow you to be sort of self-reliant, if you like. I don't think anyone can be truly just straight up on their own all the time. No man's an island and all that. Um, so yeah, I suppose it's being able to having the having the, the structures and systems around you to be able to sort of truly actually do what you need to do and overcome adversity. Mm. No, that's a good point, right? I think a lot of people misunderstand when we talk about this idea of self reliance that it's just purely a personal pursuit in the absence of everybody else. But I mean, there is something to be said for starting to work on yourself first before you can be of benefit to other people, you know? So it's great that, you know, you have a support network around you, but you definitely need to be working on yourself, which I think really leads in nicely to what we're going to talk about. One of of the things I want to discuss with you and pick your brain about is very clearly, and it's evident to me as I look around that there is a problem definitely in the West, and I'm sure increasingly in, in other parts of the world, where we have an obesity problem, where a lot of people are heavily overweight, uh, no, no pun intended. But um, what, what is your thinking behind that? Like, what, why is this happening? Why are we seeing an increase in this? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's one that I think a lot of people have views on. Um, I, I've worked in obesity for 15 years. And so, you know, people always say, oh, all you've got to do is, and then they give you their personal take on what, what you need to do. And it's usually quite simplistic, you know, eat more, eat less than you than you do, than you need to, and, and do a bit more, you know, physical activity, which at the blunt end of the stick is true. However, what people really fail to understand is is the d- drivers of their behaviors and what how how important things like habits personal circumstances life choices and life chances and the difference between those a lot of people don't really sort of mine into that um and 
I mean, really, what our what we're designed from from evolutionary perspective to to do. So, so we're we're designed in a way, or we're not designed. We 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 evolved in a way that that is um, pushing us to sort of you know put weight on and keep it on as long as possible to to um, live through periods of famine or um, you know when, whenever you're going to get your next meal or to go through extreme periods of cold, for example. Um, so we have a propensity to put on weight anyway, evolutionarily speaking. And that is different in certain people. So certain people have a, a greater propensity to put on weight than others. Um, and, um, you know, so they'll, they'll find it more difficult in an environment where we live right now, particularly in the West, where food is completely abundant. And, you know, you can pretty much get as many calories as you want to um, as cheaply as you need to. Um, but the, we know that obesity is obviously an issue of inequality because in the UK and in other countries, um, you're twice as likely to be obese if you're from the lowest um, socioeconomic group than if you're from the most affluent group in any area. Uh, and that's in children and in adults. And, and so that tells us a story about the fact that this isn't just personal choices that people are making. It's actually about life chances and about the ability to make choices. Um, and so a lot of our work, for example, at Busybodies is about working with people from, um, you know, from lower socioeconomic groups to build up. And we mentioned resilience. Oh, no, well, I mentioned resilience when you asked the question of self-reliance. What, what, what we're trying to build up is this structural resilience around people, um, which means you can't change just your, your diet and exercise if you've also got a load of other stuff going on, if you're, if you're fearful of being evicted from your home, if you don't have enough money to sort of, you know, make ends meet, if you, you're looking after kids that you can't really afford in, in, uh, to, to do all the things that you need to for those. And so what we, what we try and do in when we're working with people is trying to sort of work out what their life chances are and how can we support them to build a better foundation from which they could make sustainable behavior change. And one of the ways that we, we understand that is from looking at, a societal level, the whole systems approach, looking at a societal level and thinking, what, what, you know, what environment have we created where, you know, we're being constantly bombarded with marketing and advertising. If you're in, in a, in a, uh, an affluent area, you see a, a fraction of the number of um, takeaways, for example, that you would in a less affluent area um, to a factor of, you know, five or 10 even. You know, you walk down a high street in a, in a, a deprived area and you see takeaway after takeaway after takeaway. And Yes, there is um, an element of personal choice in that. And some people have said um, a lot, you know, well, I, you still have a choice whether to go in or not. But actually the subtle nuances of just constantly being bombarded and surrounded by uh, an environment that, that is obesogenic and also people who um, are more likely to sort of also engage in those behaviours, it becomes a social norm for those people. And so actually obesity is a function of myriad things, um, some of it down to personal choice, but a lot of it down to the environment that people find themselves in. Now, that's very interesting to me because I originally come from Johannesburg, South Africa, and I was brought up in a very impoverished area, similar to the projects in the United States. So everything you're talking about, I remember that growing up, seeing that, right? And so I'm interested on, on two fronts. I think in the one side of that is let's talk a little bit about why is that so much more evident in those environments? I mean, purely from a choice standpoint. You know, why is it that that's the choice that people are making and, and why are they eating those kinds of foods that ultimately lead to obesity? Let's talk about that first. And then maybe once we've done that, we can kind of look at what are the psychological aspects around it. So first of all, why would you say that that seems to be more prevalent in impoverished neighborhoods, lower income neighborhoods versus, say, more middle upper class neighborhoods? It's a really, really good question. Um, 
And the I, I actually don't know the answer to why are there more takeaways there? I mean, probably because there's more opportunity there. They're more densely populated for one thing, and therefore there's a larger customer base. Um, and it's a bit of a chicken and egg situation. Like, are there more takeaways and shops that sell um, things that you know we know are, are not as good for us as, as you know healthier foods in those areas um, because people are targeting those areas because there's more people there. And is that then in, in system science, you would call that a, um, a causal loop. So um, that, that's one of the things that we're, we don't know quite which one started which, but the fact that there are those shops and those takeaways means that they're, they're more likely to, for people to use them. And because people are more likely to use them, they creates a social norm and habits around that. And so they use them more. And then because there's more demand for them, they create more demand for more to pop up, for example. Um, and so, you know, from a causal loop perspective, it's probably something to do with that, but we can't tell the exact um, prime mover of what that causal loop is. Like what started that, we don't exactly know. So what do, what do you think about this? One of the things that I notice is since COVID, I've been on the Isle of Man. So I've been kind of not, not really stuck here, but this is where I've landed up in the, in, in the you know, interim while all this thing is going on. Um, and coming mainly from, like I said, originally I was from South Africa and I recently moved to Thailand. So I've been spending time there and now I'm in the UK. Obviously, I've got to go to the store. I've got to shop. And, uh, you know, I want to keep um, on my diet. I want to keep healthy. I'm physically active. I, mean, I teach martial arts for a living. That's one of the things that I do. I notice that as I go to the stores, it is far more expensive to eat healthy right, than it is to eat cheaply and unhealthy. Because if I, you know, if I, if I wanted to cut some costs here, if I wanted to save some money at the end of the day, I could save money quite easily by eating junk food. Let's just be really honest. Yeah. And time. I mean, that's, that's one of the big things. And, you know, again, it, it's not, none of these issues exist in a vacuum. They all exist as part of a system, right? So, for example, if you are in a, a really deprived area or, or, or people from lower socioeconomic groups are, are statistically uh, and i'm not trying to generalize it but they're, they're statistically less likely to have access to the same level of transport as someone in a more affluent area for example and so their choices are limited naturally and, and if they're in what we might call a food desert or a, a place where there's not a massive superstore where you can go and get lots of um, cheap um, fruit and veg for example and whatever then they're limited by their choices from whatever's around them for one thing and they, they might be lucky and they might live somewhere where they can get access to those things cheaply uh, or they might not be and so they have to take tr public transport to get to those places to it or accept that they've got limited choices and usually more expensive choices in those smaller stores as well than in the, the, the sort of bigger superstores. so that that's one element of that um the other one is about like you know do do people know what to do a lot of a lot of obesity management is currently directed at education and, and, and whilst there's an element of that that is absolutely necessary in what we do for example in busybodies most of it isn't about education because actually most people know roughly what to do they just it's not it's not knowing what to do it's, it's making it work in the context of your real life um, however in this context you know if you go into a, um, a, a supermarket or whatever and you're trying to sort of look for healthier choices 
they don't come with as many instructions. You know, you're looking around a fruit and veg aisle, they've not got all instru instructions all over them, like put this in the oven for X amount of time and then you'll have a meal at the end of it. You have to have some level of skill, some level of confidence to be able to do that. And so is that a causal loop, for example? If you don't have the skill, you don't buy it. If you don't buy it, you don't practice. If you don't practice, you don't get any better. Therefore, you end up in that loop of, you know, not, not engaging in those things. And it's definitely true that the density of, of, of calories and the quality of calories is something that people are thinking about when they go to the supermarket. You can pick up a, a you know a, a ready meal for a pound, and it's you know it'll do the whole meal. It'll be five six hundred calories or whatever, which is about what you should be having for a meal. Is it the best quality? Probably not. Does it have all the vitamins and minerals of the, the thing that you would prepare yourself? Probably not. But it's not just about calories. It's about confidence. It's about you know time to be able to prepare those foods and all that type of stuff as well. So, it's again, it's a function of various factors that are sort of playing on on people's ability, their capability, and their opportunity to be able to sort of make that change. I think that's a really good point. I'm just as you're talking, I'm thinking back to when I was growing up and just noticing certain things. And for example, and just in my neighbourhood. We, you know, like I said, I witnessed all these problems that you're talking about. One thing was, was evident is that at least for the people that were working, they were working really incredibly hard and not getting a lot for it at the end of the day. And they come home and there's not really much to do in that neighborhood either. There's really not a lot going on, right? There's no outlet for the stress, um, you know, things that they can go and do after hours, hobbies. And, and even then, even if they wanted to, as we know today, much of that oftentimes costs money too. So again, like you said, it's, I don't think it's a simple answer, but all of these things factor in, right? I mean, there's a good example of that is that I would just see people come home completely depleted, completely stressed out, and just basically plonk themselves in front of the TV, right? Drink some alcohol and eat not so great food. And then it just becomes a vicious cycle. But that is their experience. That is their existence. And I guess trying to get out of that can be quite difficult when you're just completely stressed out all the time and you don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. Yeah, for sure. And, and we see that, you know, all the time in, in the families that we work in and in the adults that we work in, in terms of trying to help people lose, lose weight and maintain those, those changes. We, we really work on behavioral science um, and behavior change from a sustainable perspective rather than focusing on weight as such. Um, but you're, you're absolutely right. And, and again, it isn't any one thing. It is, the, it is the accumulation of things. And that's the thing that people underestimate. They think, well, they choose to sit down and watch TV. They choose to eat that every night. They could choose at any time to stop doing that. But in reality, is that, is that actually a lived reality for many people? I'm just going to choose to stop. Usually there's some sort of conflict or, it, or, or event that causes someone to want to change. So we would call that, I mean, it's from, it's actually from a completely, it's from conflict um, terminology. We call that an acceptable level of violence. People will put up with a, a certain amount of discomfort for a long period of time before they actually are motivated to change it. And, and it can be quite uncomfortable. You know, they could be quite unhappy in their body. They could be quite unhappy with what they're eating and what they're doing. Uh, they could be quite unhappy in a relationship, but you'll put up with it for a long time because the fear of change is actually worse to them. And, and in reality, it wouldn't be, it would be actually much better, but it's just the fear of change. And then, you know, it's normally some sort of conflict or event that makes them change. So like a health event, for example, a divorce, a, some, something that, that sort of 
kicks them into a different, it, it disrupts their, um, their current patterns and they have to do something different to be able to sort of make some sort of sense of it. And, you know, they, they're forced to basically make some sort of change. That happens quite a lot for people that we work with. Um, but again, if they live in an area, let's say they live in a high rise area, you know, high rise flats, there's no ball game signs all over the place. Let's say that they're a single parent, not to demonize single parents in any way, shape or form. But if you're a single parent, you've effectively halved the level of support that you have to be able to sort of deal with, you know, a couple of kids. And, and you know, it went and, and we all know that that, that could be really tough um, if they are dealing with constantly being asked for things, which does happen when you've got kids and stuff, especially during lockdown. We saw that a lot during lockdown. You know, the kids were there all the time. It was a very stressful environment. When we did our, uh, we did a project in Gloucester where we were really mining into the, the nuance of like what family life was like for lots of people and stuff. And yeah, they were saying, oh, they're on the screens all the time. We want them off the screens. But actually half the time they wanted them on the screens because it was actually a really cheap, easy way of keeping them safe while they actually got their jobs done or what, while they got some respite or whatever. So they're in a really tough spot. People are in a really tough spot because it's not clear cut. We can't just say things like we want you off screens because actually we don't always want you off screens. That's a complex message for them people to sort of get their head around. And when you accumulate all these different things, you know, all these different stresses in people's lives, they're the things that they need to sort of work through and build that resilience that I was talking about, that structural resilience around them. Otherwise, if they don't have that structural resilience, that foundation, then they can't make meaningful change that lasts. It just, just doesn't work. It's all willpower based. It's all, I will just try harder this time. And that just doesn't work for a long period of time in our, in our experience. Yeah, it's interesting that you use that term safety. Again, you know, thinking back on my own childhood growing up in an impoverished neighborhood, I, I was brought up by a single parent, my mom. And um, look, you know, it wasn't really safe to, to be walking around there. And it definitely wasn't safe to be walking around there at nighttime. So it wouldn't be uncommon for those parents who were really you know, caring for their kids to want to keep them in. Look, in those days, I didn't have, we didn't have screens and stuff, right, to occupy us. So we had to find other ways to, to keep occupied. But I can see that you can quite easily slip into that pattern where almost in a way, when they're on the screens, at least you know where they are. And in another way, you know, you've been working really hard. A lot of people, especially in those environments, have multiple jobs trying to just keep afloat. And uh, you never have any time to just take a breather for yourself. So again, I think we, we, we coming back to this idea that it's multifaceted and it's not just one simple thing. And it's not just a question of just saying to somebody, okay, well, you need to change your diet. And if you change your diet, then you'll lose weight and everything will be okay. So maybe we can shift there a little bit and say, well, what is actually happening psychologically? What are the psychological implications that, that are happening that are also building into this because i think that's an important aspect as well yeah and what, and what you were saying, mentioned there rodney was interesting because in 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 johannesburg there is a very real safety issue you know and not probably not everywhere i don't know it brilliantly well but i have you know i do know a bit about uh, johannesburg and it is a very sort of you know dangerous place in some places uh, particularly i imagine in in the, the more impoverished neighborhoods and, and, and so that's, that might be slightly different to what other people are experiencing, where they have a perception of safety. And a lot of people's perception is about, you know, gangs and being kidnapped and this, that and the other, you know, and, and all that sort of stuff. Now, the reality of that might not live up to what their perception is, but that doesn't matter. Because if, they're if they perceive there to be an unsafe environment, they don't let their kids out into it, you know, and, and therefore they're less likely to be able to get some of the physical activity they might otherwise, they, they're less likely to be able to sort of interact with their friends on something that's not, for example, Call of Duty Online or whatever else it might be, you know? So 
again, it's the accumulation of all these, all these factors that lead up to building out this, this obesogenic environment. So coming back to the, the psychological element, I, I would say it's, it's psychological and sociological. And I think we, we often miss out the sociological part of this because it's, it's really important. And, and the best theory you've never heard of is, is that, I've, that we've used for the last 15 years is, is called Habitus by a guy called, a French sociologist called Pierre Bourdieu, which is essentially about um, how you, your tastes, preferences and expectations are formed. And that can be overt and, and you know, obvious, um, you know, or, or it can be really subconscious. A lot of the time you don't really know what it is that's driving the things that you like, want and need. Um, you, you just, it's just a factor of the people around you and the social environment and, and, and the physical environment that you find yourself in. However, if you punctuate that, an example that I, I use is, is, is myself going to university. I was from a bit of a, a sort of rough uh, neighborhood in, in Luton in, in England. And um, when I went to university, I, I met people who'd been to private schools and all that type of stuff. And all of a sudden I thought, well, we're at the same place. We're doing the same course. We're equal, you know, arguably as smart as each other. But why do they think that they're going to go off into industry and, you know, in, into the officership in the army and then into the to, to the city and i think i'm going to be lucky to get a job at all after university and, and the answer is that my friendship group and my family are, are were had much more modest um means they had much more modest circles around them and our expectations as such were much more modest whereas when i when i was exposed to other things it punctuated that 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 sort of thought that there's nothing outside of this and, and it opened up my eyes to a, a whole world of other things. And then there's been several things that have happened to me since that have also opened my eyes in many ways. And for many people, it might be traveling or something along those lines. And that's, that's, a, that's a really important thing that people don't consider is what is it that's actually driving your tastes, preferences and expectations? Because if you, and when we work with young people, what I love working with, I, one of the reasons I love working with teenagers particularly, but young people generally, is you get a chance to try and broaden their horizons, talk to them in a way that is, is sort of opening their eyes to the fact there's more than just what they can see in front of them and that there, there is potential for them to actually move into those things, but they need good support systems and, and a plan to be able to sort of move that way. Do you see what I mean? So, that's one of the reasons that I really think that we should be using more sociology in, in, in um, behavioral science generally, but also in, in obesity. But behavioral science and um, psychology is obviously a massive part as well. And, and even behavioral economics to a certain extent, because, um, you know, you can impact the way people choose things by the way you merely the way you, you frame them. So giving people two choices, you can, you can, default them towards one choice and people do you know in, in using things like nudge and, and stuff like that you can default people's choices really well using psycho you know, psychological behavioral economics approaches but then there are also a range of classic psychological theories that we might be using like self-determination theory cognitive evaluation theory those type of things about you know what parts of those work really well when you're designing interventions for example and what parts of those actually fall apart when you get down to the level of the individual because individuals live their lives in nuance everything you do as a person is not oh it's not a generality to you it's nuanced stuff that you go from one thing to the next to the next to the next and it all means something to you it all interacts in a really personal way but when, when people try and get people to change like you know in the in the uk at the moment we've got the better health campaign going on that's all generalities that's all operating at a general level. And when you try and bring generalities to people who want nuance, they just pass by like ships in the night. And this is something that a really interesting um, sort of social theorist called Cormac Russell talks about, this, this notion that people need information given to them and, and they need to be supported at the, at the community level and in nuance, because that's where they live. 
And when you try and give them generalities, they just don't really accord with most of their life. They just accord with little bits of it. And that doesn't really help them make structural change that lasts. So it's interesting you're talking about taste preferences. Again, you know, just thinking back when I was growing up, you made it in my neighborhood if you got a job at the local factory as a welder. Like that was it, right? Like that was seen as the epitome of success. Uh, and I'm thinking about like what actually motivated me to find myself to, you know, at least the, the, the impetus, the motivation to get out of it. And it was a culmination of things. One, as you noted earlier, sometimes you need something you know, really uh, impactful in your life that just forces you to change. And that was my mother who was a raging alcoholic. She kicked me out of the house when I was 17. I found myself sleeping on the streets of Johannesburg with no prospect for the future. And one thing led to the next. And then I enrolled into the military because in that time in South Africa, military service was compulsory. I entered the military at 17. I actually forged my mother's hand signature to get in, you know? So yeah, yeah. I, I got into the military. Don't tell them. <laughs> Don't tell them. Yeah. So I got into the military at, at 17, turned 18 in, in, in the army. And I think had I not done that, I might've ended up in a very different place. So that forced me to see the world in a different way. And the rest is history, so to speak. But the point is, is that I can speak to that, that in my neighborhood, there was this perception of what was deemed successful. And again, I'm, I'm wondering how much of that is coming down from the top down. I mean, in society, we definitely look at those neighborhoods not in a positive light. We look at them as, you know, oh, those are just, you know, people that are lazy, that don't have any motivation, um, you know, they, they, they don't have the willpower. We give them stuff, but they don't want to actually do anything about it. But I think ultimately what you're saying is, and I agree with that, is that, Yes, you're just giving them a general sense of what success is, but that doesn't teach anybody on a personal level what success might look like. Well, what the, yeah, and the equivalent of what you're talking about, Rodney, is they're, they're giving people a fish and they're trying to get them to eat it. They're not giving them a fishing rod and, and, and the skills and the, the environment in which they can actually sort of make change work for them. And that's why Cormac Russell, for example, is a really interesting guy because he's not just talking about um, doing interventions to people from government to people he's talking about empowering communities to act on their own behalf and that's interesting because that's where real change happens and, and so i want to unpack a couple of things so so it was actually really good that your mum kicked you out in some respects because it, it was an impetus for you to do something else to think outside of the box of well i can't get into the welding factory right now so i need to do something else you, your choices were limited but luckily you got yourself into the army now it ha had that that army gave you i presume structure from which you could then have a stable base a sense of resilience and a sense of structural resilience you had a stable foundation from which you could then make sense of where you were and then you could grow from that you, you had a you had a sense of safety within that even though the army probably you know, put you in some other situations that probably didn't make you feel safe but but compared to being on the streets of johannesburg you had a foundation from which you could then work from to, to sort of work out what you wanted to do you were exposed to lots of different people and those people probably had an impact on the way that you thought and what your new taste preferences and expectations were and then you know the rest is history as you say um but 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 that was definitely obviously a, a turning point for you uh, in the way that you 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 then moved on to whatever you then moved on to next the the um the thing that you then then mentioned uh what was the thing you mentioned after that sorry I'm, i was um distracted by something that just flashed up on my screen yeah i think i think what i, I was saying is that you know 
there is this kind of gener generality when we talk about success coming from the top down, right? And, and ultimately, you know, that doesn't really speak to a person on a personal level of what success yeah. might look like for them. For sure, yeah. Um, and, and that's true. And, and, and that's where something like, um, you know, having good, having good role models around you. And um, uh, one of the things that really helped me turn me around was a teacher that took me aside and called me a dick one day. Uh, and I was like, I, I just don't think, you know, you can't talk to me like that. And they were like, yeah, I can, because you're, you're clearly smart enough to do better than you're doing, but you're just getting caught up in all this stuff. And that's a shame. And they, they sort of took me under their wing and that had a big impact on me. Um, in reality, it was actually because I partially fan I, I fancied the teacher a little bit. And that had a, I mean, it sounds stupid, but that actually had a, that made her opinion worth more to me because I, because I, I thought she was attractive. Um, and you know, that, that was a, if that's what it took to get me to sort of start to think differently, who cares? You know, that, that's what it took. Um, and that, that's the reality of that situation. Um, but the, what, going back to one of the things that are, uh, you know, if we look at what's going on in the world today with the protests around the world from George Floyd, for example, before that, you know, there was still the same level of, of uh, violence towards um, black people by the police and not all of them or anything like that. I'm not making this a big political thing, but, but it was only one more black person being killed by the police. Now, now, had that not been caught on video, what would the impact have been? We don't know. It probably wouldn't have been anything like what it has been because it would have been explained away differently, et cetera, et cetera. But because it was on video, it enraged people and people were sat, sat at an acceptable level of violence in the US. And then all of a sudden it tipped over because people became outraged by that one thing. And that has continued to sort of get people to think, what is the problem here? Is it a few bad apples is, or is it something more systemic than that? Is it actually that we're not um, when we're you know, is it in the way we train people? Is it in the, in the way that the law's set up? Is it in, um, it's, what, what are the other factors that are impacting that? So it's, it, what's happening is good in a way, but it's obviously quite destructive, but it's, it's challenging the system. And that's an extreme example of what we personally have to go through, which is we sit with our discomfort and we sit with our weight and we sit with our, you know, mental health concerns or whatever those things are that we're sitting with. And we'll sit with them to a certain extent. But once we get that punctuated once there's an opportunity to change or once there's a driver for change we we usually focus on i'm going to use my willpower to change this i'm just going to try really hard what we don't do is think what are the things around me that are causing this thing what are the things what are the what are the antecedents not just the symptoms of the issue and so what we try to do with people is we try to sort of help them work out what the antecedents of those things are and work through some of those so that we're creating conditions where the changes that you then want to make have a chance of surviving for a long period of time yeah i mean i might sound like a little bit of an anarchist here when i say this but you know I, even in the position that i'm in and i've been pretty successful and i've clearly you know from the, where i came from to where i am now at least in the western world would be considered a success but i keep thinking to myself that i can see how people just get so despondent because society and especially this kind of capitalistic mindset spreads this notion of what success is and you know ultimately and we can speak about that i don't we know that at least i know that on a very intuitive and experiential level that everything that's been put forward is this is what you need to do to be successful actually isn't success at all. It's a mirage of success. In a way, it's kind of sad, really, if you think about it. I, I have this conversation with myself all the time, even though I've been pretty successful. The reality is, is that I have to do things in order to earn money, because if I don't earn money, then how am I going to live in this world? In a way, really, it feels like from the moment we were born until the moment we die, we are slaves on this planet, and we are working for somebody else and not for ourselves. 
And so that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do this podcast is because how do we get back to self-reliance? How do we take ownership again of ourselves and not be laden by what society says success and at least not be so heavily influenced or if, if we are being influenced, which I believe we are, that we know that we are, right? So it's kind of that matrix paradigm, right? So, okay, I need to live in the matrix. I get that. I got to play by the matrix's rules, but at least I know it's the matrix. And because I know it, I can then decide how I want to play in that game. I mean, I think it's a great point. I, I, I totally agree with that. I, I, um, it is a very tricky thing for many people who are, who are struggling to get out. I mean, I personally have been told no a lot in my career. Um, I worked in you know, the, the NHS, local authorities, national government and the civil service uh, and run my own company. And, and I've been told no a lot because people just generally have this sort of confine that they need to remain safe within and anything that pushes the boundary of that doesn't fit within. Um, it, it's, it's not worth the risk to most people, but the, the people that change things are the people that are willing to take that risk. They're willing to, to, to be told no and keep going. They're willing to sort of look outside of um, the system to a certain extent and think, what can I, how can I use what I uh, I've got here? What, how my talents, my, my, you know, my intellect, et cetera, to, to you know, change things. And some people change those things for building a business and making money, um, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, some people change those things because they, they are activists and whatever. And, and I, I think that I lean more towards that. I, I'm much more bothered about helping people, um, and particularly people in the more sort of precarious positions that we sort of often end up working with people in. Um, because just helping them see, I mean, some of the time what we're doing is explaining the thing that you just explained, like you're in a matrix and this is what the matrix looks like. And so, you know, this is how we can sort of help you to work within it in a better way, or this is how to get out of the matrix is the blue pill, if you like. Um, and it, it's a, it's a very, it's a fascinating idea that you sort of posit there. Um, and I, I, yeah, it's, it's, something I often think about too, about what, what is the way out of this? And I think that what's going on in the world, and, and you, knew, you know, mentioned being an anarchist, what's going on in the world right now is interesting because people are rebelling against this sort of more capitalist element of the system. Or I think people generally accept capitalism as a good idea. It's just executed quite poorly sometimes. And um, if it was more, you, you can have capitalism from within a more community-based model. And, and that's probably what we want to move more towards. And I think everyone would want to do that. Um, but then how do you get... How do you out Amazon, Amazon, you know, because everyone says, yeah, we should be shopping local, blah, blah, blah. But who's willing to put their money on the line to do that when you haven't got any? No one, because Amazon is, it, it, it epitomizes, for example, everything that um, people want. They want simplicity. They want cheap goods. They want it delivered quickly. Um, you know, they want to know they've got a good deal. Amazon delivers all of that stuff. How can local stores compete with that? They can't. So actually people have to choose, do I want to spend more money and have more inconvenience in my life and be supporting a local system? Or do I just want to sit down and watch this show on Netflix and get this delivered within either the same day or the next morning? You know, it's a very tricky, it's very tricky to sort of un, unpick this and unweave the rainbow a little bit. I think definitely, I mean, it's a vicious cycle, right? You were talking about that there definitely is a movement globally, at least in the Western world, where people are starting to rally against this kind of control or the perception of what is seen as success and you have to measure up to it, otherwise you don't fit in. The issue that I see personally is that 
oftentimes this seems to be shifting into more of a violent kind of protest, right? So using violence as a means to achieve an end. The problem I have with that is that when I see people using violence in that way, in, in, in the way that I look at it is they really are just basically reinstating the system, so to speak. They're giving the system back its power by doing it in that way because that kind of reaction is exactly what the system is saying is the wrong way to do things, right? So it's kind of, again, it's a vicious, a vicious cycle. So maybe just to kind of bring this back uh, in more of a grounded sense, if we're talking about people that are struggling in the way that we've said, and be it with obesity or whatever that may be, what are some of the practical tools? What are some of the individual things that you've seen that somebody can do and apply in their own life that actually works? I mean, I know you talk about, you know, translating evidence into meaningful interventions. What is some of that? I mean, even if it's just three or four things that I could do today to start making that change, if I find myself in this kind of situation that we've been talking about. Yeah, no worries. So, so in, in the 15 years I've been working with, people to sort of help manage their weight, whether it's families, individuals, adults, uh, teens, whatever. The, the attempt to change, and this is in, in all different areas, not just in weight, the attempts to change usually had th- three issues, right? And, and the first one, I call them three universal truths. I'm writing a book at the moment called The Habit Before the Habit. It's all about creating healthier environments around you so that you can actually sort of maintain change. The first, first universal truth is that people aren't as rational as they like to think. And instead of telling people that we do experiments with them and we show them, you know, you can be easily manipulated by doing this, that and the other. And, and that's what that's what marketers are doing. That's what, what you know is going on in society right now. So not being as rational as you like to think is the first universal truth. The second universal truth is that there's a planner, a planning self and a doing self. And this comes from Daniel Kahneman's system one and system two thinking. But um, the, the, the planning self is the very rational person that sits there on, you know, on a Sunday night saying, right, this week I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to eat well, I'm going to exercise every morning, etc., etc." And the doing self is the person that actually lives out the day-to-day. They're the person that's stressed out at work because their boss has made them stay late so they can't get to the gym on the way home or whatever. You know, this is the person that's, that's had a row with their partner and then you know, goes and grabs a burger as they've sort of gone off for a drive or whatever, you know, like this is, this is the real lived reality that you could never really plan for. And when you, when the lived reality, when the doing self doesn't live up to the plans of the planning self, you get to the third universal truth, which is the what the hell effect. And the what the hell effect is when, you know, you, you've had a bad day, you've had a row, you know, any type of emotional state you find yourself in and you just think, oh, sod it, I'm just going to do whatever. And you, and you have a takeaway or, you, you know, you, or if it's someone's birthday at work and you're sitting there and you're, you're trying to avoid it, you're trying to avoid it and you think, oh, I'm just going to have some of the cake. And then you have a bit of the cake and you think, well, I've ruined my diet now anyway. I might as well have a, you know, a glass of wine or a bottle of wine and a, and a takeaway when I get, and really enjoy falling off the wagon, you know. Um, and that can be the same for smoking. You, know, you, you can go for a long time without smoking, but then once you have one, it's like you broke the dam. In reality, you have one cigarette. It's not, not the end of you not smoking. It just means you had one cigarette. But for many people, having one cigarette is like breaking the dam. Right? So then you get this what the hell effect. And so what we do with that is we, we run the experiment. We, we try to change what it means to, to um, 
how you experience the process of change. So we call it running the experiment because when you run an experiment, you know you're not going to get it all right first time and you try really hard to work out all the different elements that might not work for you. So to do that, you need what we, what's called a growth mindset. So Carol Dweck's done some really interesting work on mindset, fixed and growth mindset, really interesting book she's got out and, and she's done TED Talks and stuff you can look up online. Um, the fixed mindset is about having your intellect and your, your, your current situation being fixed. And, um, you know, it's not about effort. It's about, you know, you, you existing within that reality. The growth mindset is that if you put forth effort, you can change uh, and you can improve things. And so you need to have a growth mindset to change what it means to fail because most people's attempts in weight, but also in smoking and in alcohol and in all sorts of other things that they're trying to change, you know, finishing work on time, a relationship issue that they're facing, you think you can do it with willpower. So you plan, you put the willpower forward and you either do it or you don't. You lose weight this week or you don't lose weight. You eat the cake, you don't eat the cake. That's a fixed mindset. A growth mindset is um, accepting at the beginning that you've got this plan, but some of it might not work and that's totally fine. And when something doesn't work, you eat the cake, you, know, you have a row with your partner, you smoke a cigarette, whatever. You say, what about that? Not at the time, because anytime you're aroused in that way, you know, from, from feeling guilty or whatever, you can't really function uh, at a rational level. But the next day, say, for example, you go, what about that plan didn't work? And you look at the bit that, you know, it was the person you were with was sort of saying, oh, come on, let's just have a quick fag or, or, or let's just, you know, if someone came in with, a, with a, a cake at work or whatever. And you ask yourself the question, what about that didn't work? What would I do differently next time? And you just reset the experiment and you basically get to a point where you, you, you naturally find all of the parts of that experiment that don't work. And eventually it, you build up what I call a habit chain and you just do one thing at the beginning and it kicks the chain off. So your habits and the social and, and physical environment around you sustain the thing that you wanted because you've changed the social and physical environment around you. And so for me, what we, what we, the way we help people change, um, you know, quite significant behaviors and, and long-term behaviors in terms of weight and relationships and conflict and all this other stuff is by accepting that you need a growth mindset and then committing to changing what failure means. Failure is stopping. Failure is not, not doing the thing you set out to do in the first instance. So it's about resetting the experiment and running it again and again. And there's also something to be said for congratulating yourself, even on the small victories, right? And I think a lot of people don't do that because we set, you know, let's say we set a goal, we set a behavior change. That's kind of the ultimate thing that we want to achieve. As you said, you know, plans don't always go the way you would like them to, but you're going to get certain things right on that way, right? Even though you need to reset. And when you get them right, I think it's really important as I know it just sounds ridiculous, but it's really important to give yourself a pat on the back and go, you know what, actually I did that and I, and I made that work. And you know, if that was two weeks ago, I probably wouldn't have been able to. So even though it's a small little victory, you know, that's a good thing. And even resetting, coming back to the plan in itself is a victory, right? For sure. And, and, and there's two things. Like one of them is that, that people aren't, so the opposite is true. You need to be kind to yourself when, you, when it doesn't work too, um, because people are often very, very um, self-punishing and, um, a great question I ask people is if that was your best friend that did exactly the same thing in exactly the same situation, would you be this harsh to them? Because the answer is always no. We're always much harsher to ourselves than we would be to someone else. So if you need that in your life, so, so if you build out a habit chain, one of the things I would put in the habit chain is how are you going to build accountability and support into that? I'd make someone text their friend right then on the phone to them when I was in front of them or whatever. I'd say, text your friend and tell them that you want them, you, you want them to support you in this journey and, you, and tell them what you need from them. Because 
right then and there, you've set up a system that automatically has the potential to support you in, in your future journey. And you don't have to do anything else about that. That's already done. That bit is done. And that kicks off the habit chain. And by writing it out in a habit chain, it gives you the ability to do exactly what you're saying, Rodney. You get a chance to look at all of the different elements that went exactly as you planned. And then you can be kind to yourself about the bit that didn't and then reset the experiment. And then you can run it again. And, and you know, you gradually build a sense of, of, a, of growing achievement rather than just binary, did it work, did it not? So by having the little links in the chain to look back at, you actually provide yourself with the opportunity to do exactly what you're saying, to congratulate yourself on the small things that you've done well throughout that, things you overcame even though you needed to use willpower to do it. Um, and you don't have this be-all and end-all binary, did it work or not, in, on the whole. You know, did I lose three pounds this week or not? No, I think that's very useful. So as we come to the end, Stuart, what would you want to leave people with? What's your final words of wisdom? You know, based on what we've been talking about, would you feel there's something that is a, an absolute number one takeaway? Yeah? I mean, I think it's really what we were just talking about. It's, it's about being kind to yourself, accepting that it's not your, not everything is your fault. If you're trying to make some sort of change happen, there's loads of things that are acting on that. And, and the key to, to making change work is having a growth mindset, understanding that you can't just willpower your way through every type of change you want to make. It's about understanding the, the social and physical environment around you. And then when you're trying to make change, just have that growth mindset when you're doing it. Run the experiment. Set up your habit chain. Set up the things you think are going to happen in order. And then when they don't, that's fine. That's where all of the rich information is. The failure is where all of the great information is. So I would just say look for that failure and, and don't see it as failure. Be kind to yourself in that process. To learn more about the art of self-reliance, our virtual coaching service, online courses, and our retreats in Thailand, head over to Primal Skills. That's with a Z.com.